Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. Yeah, here it is. I'm excited. This is going to be a good one. I've got the pen ready, the paper ready. And if you're listening to this, you can just let it seep in or you can get some paper and pen too, because this one is going to be, this is, we're going to school here today. I'm excited, but a good school, not that school that none of us liked. All right. This today is a special episode. I'm, I've been excited to talk to this guest for a long time and we finally got it lined up. Well, who is he, Casey? Stop talking. He's a serial entrepreneur, a technologist, marketing thought leader and advisor. Um, and, and, and a leader, a marketing leader as well, a mentor, a speaker, president of Founderscale, Josh Sweeney. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Man, I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to learn from you. I want to get this party started. Let's do it. I got to hand you this thing. It's really heavy. All right. Uh, uh, okay, here it comes. <clears throat> okay, here you go. You can grab that. You got it? Oh, got it. Backhanded grab of Thor's hammer. Okay. <laughs> Take Thor's hammer for me and smash some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception, set the record straight once and for all. Got it. Let's do it. So uh, here it is. Scalable revenue is built, not bought. That's the myth, right? So a lot of people love that easy button. They're like, hey, I'm going to stroke a check to the lead gen service. I'm going to stroke a check to the agency and we're going to scale up. And uh, I'm not saying those services don't have their place because they very much do, but you got to build first and then you can augment, then you can use those services and leverage them to scale up. So scalable revenue is built, not bought. Man, I got, I got an email today, even somebody cold outreach email. Hey, we <laughs> do this cold outreach thing. I want 5k and I can imagine, you know, if it hadn't said 5k, if you said like 1k, I remember maybe I can buy. I can buy some scale here. Yeah. Nope, nope. Paper. It was too high. And so it, it triggered my my rationality sense. But yeah, people falling for that where they're like, oh, well, let me just pay you money and hopefully just solve all my problems. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's something to think about in that, right? So with that as an example, it's a great example, is the barrier to entry matters, right? If the barrier to entry is so low that you get, I mean, I probably get 10 of these, 20 of these a day. I know if I look at my spam account, it's, it's higher, right? I get so many of these emails a day. The barrier to entry is so low that how well do you think that is working, right? Everybody's just turning it off. If it's the easy button and anybody can just stroke that check, there's so many companies doing it that the buyer is actually just turning it off, right? They just start letting them go to spam. They mark them as spam. They delete them because they get so many. So it's not that those things can't work in some instances. Right. It's just that, you know, if that if that barrier to entry is low, you know, everybody else can do it really easily. Yeah. Why do we fall into this trap? Why is this a myth that people get sucked, ourselves included, get sucked into for not careful? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things like one, it's some of it's short term thinking, right, or short term mm -hmm. thinking around results. It's like yeah. I can write a check, you know, I can spend 5000 and they're going to create create $15,000 in leads or close one revenue. And we see that that just generally doesn't work. It can happen. But in general, it doesn't work that way. I think the other thing that we see is that a lot of times 
as leaders, we look out as an, at another company doing something really well, and we analyze that and we think it would work for us. And what we don't understand in, in a lot of instances is what were the hard steps to get there, right? We're trying to skip some steps instead of putting in that work. And what we find is someone did the hard work to get the momentum going that made something else down the line work better, right? So yeah. one plus one equaled three because this had already happened. Um, whereas for you, it might not be the case. So there's a lot of nuance in, in the things that come together from a marketing perspective to create that momentum. Someone went ahead and built it. Right. They didn't buy uh, it. They built, built it. it. You're looking at it right. going, maybe I can, <laughs> can I buy what they built? Yeah. And we see it all the time, right? I mean, I was talking to another uh, marketing leader the other day and, you know, they were like, well, this company does this. And I was like, actually, I know the founder of that company and I know they're at 500 million now, wow. but let me tell you what they did when they got started, right? That person, that, that founder was on a roadshow for three years. So yes, when they wrote a check for other things that added on, it was a compound interest, right? But they had already built and they didn't think they could leap to just, you know, buying. And so right. those are the stories I love is, is hearing like, what is that? What are the steps that really came before that nobody tells us about? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a classic overnight success that, you know, a 10 year overnight <laughs> right. success. Yeah. Just write the check. It'll happen. Yeah. Right. Here, here's my, here's my, uh, I was say Bitcoin account. Hey, here's my, uh, send the money here. Uh, so right. if we know it has to be built, where do you start? Where, where, what's the sober starting point for this? Okay. No more money parties here. Let's yeah. The, the sober part is hard yeah. work. Yeah. You know, the sober part is hard work. So, you know, not just delegating and ditching, you know, to somebody else, but looking at like, what do I need to do as the leader, as the marketing leader, where do I really have to grind to get to before I can make this transition? And what we see is a lot of people try to make that transition too early and the results aren't what they, what they want them to be. So which, tra I, which transition too early? Well, just the transition to scalable or, or for uh, getting out of their role, right? Like, Hey, I'm a marketing leader and now I can hire this person to take over this. Right. And what they need to do is they need to delegate and elevate for a year or two, instead of what we see a lot of time is, is delegate and ditch. They're like, okay, I hired this person. They're good at what they do. Now I'm, uh, I, I can step back and go work on this other thing. I'll see you later. And then that doesn't go very well, you know? Right. So the timing, um, whether it's whether it's a founder of a of a business, whether it's a marketing leader, you know, we see a lot of it should be delegate and elevate for a period of time uh, instead, and that's going to have compound interest. That's going to have much better results. Got it. So even before it's time to do it, you need to be building the team around you, yeah. leading them in the right way, making sure you're elevating them, giving them responsibility and leeway in order to make things happen prior to even being the point in time where you need to start building or that's right. part of the building process really is building the team that's the build right that's build that build. team and i think it's the same with vendors though you know a lot of people uh all size companies hire agencies and everything and they they kind of delegate and ditch right they're like yeah. i hired the vendor you take care of this you're the expert and generally you need to build with them and just plan on building alongside the vendor Right. for a period of time, and then they can take it over from you. 
you know, and again, that's that short-term thinking kind of coming back to bite us, at least in my experience in the companies we work with, that short-term thinking normally comes back to bite us in some way. Right. Yeah. Okay. Short-term. So, I mean, so what do you recommend then? So what, what is the right thing to, if, if we're building, I mean, it just seems like such a giant to do. How do you You're break right, that right. up into manageable pieces so we don't just freak out after listening to the show because we didn't do trigger <laughs> warning so we did not we did not before we all go run and scream yeah i think a lot of it's um looking at the patterns of success of what got you there and then trying to add on to them what we see a lot of times is it's always like this next thing because the thing you're doing you know the marketing tactic you're using got a little monotonous Right. And there's many levels to no matter whether we're doing PPC or demand gen or whatever, there's levels. And we can always, a lot of times, depending on the company, we can take it to the next level. We can do more of what works instead of adding complexity in. So when we're building, we're really looking at like what already works. Is there an industry where you're thinking, hey, I'm going to go into this other industry? We've seen this. Like, here's an example we're going to go into this other industry. And then I look at the industry they're in and I'm like, this isn't even close to penetrated. Like you, you haven't even, you haven't even covered the industry you're in where you already have collateral and materials and referrals and all these things going for you. And now you're trying to jump over here, you right. know, so you can continue to build on that momentum. So I think that's, that's key is, is build on what's already working and see, can I take that to level three or four or five? What is that before you go jump on the next thing? Do you have some favorite go-tos, what you've seen work a lot, or is this so in- industry dependent? Is this um, a- it can be a little bit. I mean, I'm going to say that I have a certain lens because we work mainly with B2B companies. Right. And so I have a that's different primarily lens. who's listening too. So that's okay, perfect. perfect. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my lens of the world. And so we're big fans of demand generation, where it's all about engaging and educating in order to build the pipeline. You know, and when you engage and educate, you get a lot of that early adoption. You get a lot of people that are looking for the content. So they think of you as they go through the buyer's journey. And so I think of a lot of the building is how are you consistently engaging and educating to build the pipeline that you're looking to build? And then once you've engaged and educated enough people, then you can convert and close. And again, we, we can't just jump to convert and close. And so we have to look at that, whether it's a large or, you know, an enterprise adding a new product or a service line, or whether it's a small business owner, you know, trying to make that leap, we have to engage and educate, then convert and close. Cool. Cool. Engage, educate, then convert and close. Right. Most people try to jump to convert and close. Uh, And convert would be what? Convert a lead into an opportunity? We'll just generate a lead, right? It goes back to that easy button of buying, right? Like I'm just going to buy a service and they're going to set meetings for me and I'm going to have this hot lead. And usually for most companies that doesn't work unless you've already engaged with that person in many other ways, right? Because sales is, is built on trust and respect. You know, we, we buy from people we trust and know and respect, And so a lead, you know, the convert and close would be just trying to just generate a lead out of thin air from this mythical group of people that are hot and ready to buy your product. Yeah. And uh, what usually is actually the case is there was another company engaging and educating way before they were ready to buy, way before they were ready to convert. And that's who they trust. So it makes it even harder for, you know, you to jump and kind of skip in line. 
Right. It's almost like the old age old thing with RFPs. If you weren't involved in writing the RFP, that's usually worth bidding on it because (laughs) somebody else helped write that so that it was perfect for them. That's funny you share that. I asked that to a prospect the other day. I said, you know what the saying is about RFPs? And he's like, what? And I was like, the vendor who wrote it wins the deal. You know, yeah. and it, it's kind of the same thing, right? Is is a lot of people are trying to just hire a service that just generates leads for them. And they're trying to skip in line and get that deal when another vendor already really wrote that RFP, right? Another vendor already engaged and educated and walked beside that person through their buyer journey. And then you think you're going to swoop in and grab that deal. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but what we said was we're trying to build scalable revenue, not lucky revenue. Not lucky revenue and also not bottom dweller revenue, because typically if somebody else has a relationship and trust, the only way you're dethroning that is what? By being just a absurdly cheap version, you know, and then you have those cheap customers and then how they pick you is how they leave you, right? They, they wanted you for the (laughs) low price. They're going to leave you for the low price and- that's terrible business to get in. But I think the thing you showed me just now was even if one of these things is like a, it does get their attention. If, if you're going for that quick win, somebody else was playing the long game and they're going to win in the end because they're that source of trust. So even if you interject yourself, all you are is just helping, you know, maybe helping that person price shop three vendors. Like, well, I right. needed to have three. I really yeah. want to go with these guys. And I, and some idiot jumped in the process. So thankfully yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we shopped them and they're terrible, you know? And so it's like, it's almost like busy work for the sake of a busy work or a lead or an appointment that's set, but it sounds like it's totally empty. It's like eating super empty calories. Yeah, I think it can be right. And, yeah. and most of the time you just don't even get the calories, right? Like True. you don't even get the lead. It just, it was more of a hope and a dream. Yeah. Uh, but then when you get them, like you said, they can be very low quality. And that's, that's something we hear a lot of, you know, with companies that have done a lot of lead generation tactics. And then they come to us and they're like, okay, I've bought like six of those. They didn't work. Now we'll do demand gen, right? We've kind of mm. learned the lesson. We'll switch over to demand generation. And um you know, that's the thing is they found out it was empty calories. So of the meetings they got set or of the leads they got from PPC, you know, maybe the quality just wasn't there. So there's a lot of dynamics to that, right? There's, there's getting lucky. There's, there are instances, a lot of those things we're talking about work. Um, But for the most part, it can, it can be challenging or or not work for, for the majority of companies. I, I love that this demand gen lead gen thing is surfacing here. I feel like there's a great debate that needs to be smashed with Thor's <laughs> hammer. I am probably guilty of just treating them like the same, knowing that they're probably a little bit different, but my sense, and from looking at some of the conversations you've had and some of your posts and whatnot, there's a dramatic difference between lead gen and demand. Could you, could you talk to that? Could you like help us all sort that out? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, Kind of going back to what I said before, demand gen, the goal is to engage and educate your audience. Right. So the whole goal is not to convert, not to try and close right now, you know, not to email them and be like, hey, can I get a meeting? And you've never met them before, you know, things like that. So demand generation is about building that engaged audience and you're building a following. Then you come in with lead generation 
and you convert and close, right? So when you've right. done demand generation and you've you've heard me on a podcast and you came to my webinar and you joined our newsletter, I've now engaged and educated you on demand generation. So then if I call and try and set a meeting, my likelihood is through the roof, right? You, you've probably already bought into the message and you're going to be a better client too, because you've opted in and say, I believe in what you're saying. And and I'm willing to listen to more about how I can solve this problem for my business. So I think that's the other really cool thing about uh, demand generation is you are attracting the people who buy in and believe in your messaging, right? So you're creating this following. So with lead gen, and I'm not going to get, you know, for the marketers out there, somebody will be like, oh, that's that's not lead generation, right? What, what I'm saying when I talk about lead generation is what we think most, most business leaders call lead generation, which is I am going to build a list of people, or I'm going to try and get in front of this magical list of people with marketing or sales tactics, whatever it is. And they're going to just convert to a lead within the next 90 days and buy from us, right? This hot lead thing. And so that's not really lead generation, but that is what, that is what most business leaders really end up putting it in the box of. And that can be challenging too for people who provide a great lead generation service. Um, So we find that those work in different ways and and you really can't skip. You know, if if you just try and skip the lead generation, that's when those campaigns fail. Um, You need demand generation before that. Yeah, it's a great point too, that even if that isn't technically the definition, if that's the perception of the C-suite, of your leadership, of your boss, of then that there's some there's some perception there's some messaging you need to modify here otherwise you're out of a job at some point because it doesn't matter that the definition is different you need to understand what your customer what your 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 coworkers are ultimately thinking about um and then you know yeah. do some good old fashioned internal marketing and get them understanding what what needs to happen yeah, definitely. And that's exactly what we see. Like we say, it's it's kind of not fair, you know, yeah. we, and we say it up front, it's not fair to talk about lead generation that way, because it can, there's a lot of dynamics there that provide a lot of value, but that is the perception for most leaders. And so it's like, okay, how do we make these things work congruently and give you really good results? Love that. If I could dive in, get, I don't want to say a little bit more tactical. Sure. There's been a lot of thought leadership you know, from you and team around webinars lately. Yeah. Um, topic close to my heart. I love the showmanship of it. I love the educational side of it. Talk to me about what you've seen out there. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly. And what what things have you seen that are yeah. terrible? I think a lot of us can relate to the boring webinar. How How do you convert that, turn that around and make just the golden webinar? So let's talk about, I guess the, the hard side of it, right. Is, is one kind of the bad webinars, right? So where a webinar is just incongruent, you know, we've, we've seen, we've been on webinars and and done some coaching with clients where like, you can tell that they're reading off a paper and you can literally hear them turning the paper page that they printed out on the webinar. I've been in a room where I was a youngster at that point, uh, where that's what our company did. They, they read and it yeah. didn't it sounded pretty boring to me. I mean, I was in the room and it was boring. I can't right. imagine the people casually listening on their computers at home. 
Oh yeah. And I, I mean, literally I can hear the page turn. I'm like, really? Yeah. You know, where are we at here? Like give right. me, at least do some digital notes. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I've seen that. I mean, that's been in the last 12 months, um, very low energy webinar where it's like, if you're not excited about this, why should I be excited about this? You know, so low energy. Um, so that's a lot about just kind of the delivery of the webinar. Um, I think some of the other things we see, and, and it's kind of more of the myth side or just maybe the misunderstanding is, you know, we get a lot of questions around like, well, webinars don't work in for me or my industry, or do they work anymore? And what we tell people is, listen, if you just bought a list and you've never done any demand generation and you just think 50 people are going to show up at your webinar, it's probably not going to happen. So you're right. It doesn't work in that case. What we see is when you've built an engaged audience and your marketing team's done a really good job, you can drive a lot of people to webinars and you can even compound that, right? Marketing, uh, we like to compound it by getting sales and marketing involved. So traditionally, webinars are sent out through everybody that's opted into a newsletter on a marketing side. We like to use a webinar as a BD campaign as well. So like we have a client had 600 people on a, on a newsletter and they would get about 20 people on their webinar, but then we would send out BD messages from their sales reps or help them send out BD messages. They got like another 20 people on the webinar that were prospects or people that were engaging with their brand. And so there's lots of ways where when you really dig into it, you know what works and what doesn't in a webinar. And so webinars do work if you have an engaged audience if um, if you're if you're known for delivering valuable content and you're doing a different webinar, more people will show up because they found value and didn't feel like it was just a sales pitch. So there's all kinds of little techniques uh, with the delivery, with how you get butts and seats and, you know, how much you need to email them and follow up ahead of time to get them there and, and the post webinar work. There's there's a whole list of post webinar work of reusing the content, sending it out to those who were on it, sending it out to those who weren't on it that you originally originally invited. There's just wow. all kinds of things, you know, from a webinar perspective. And so I guess well, I'll, uh, I was giving you a break to have a sip there. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Drinking my, uh, yeah. My so, um, I guess the last thing I like to share too, is a lot of times what, what we see is people get caught up on the attendees and the number and what they really should be thinking about is how many people during that campaign did I get to get in that I have the chance to get in front of, right? I have, I got to get in front of a thousand people with our offer and they're going to remember me just a little bit more than they did mm -hmm. before. And that's part of demand generation is staying in front of that audience and getting that name recognition up. So it's not always about just how many people attended. It's, it is about how many touch points you got, how many people you engaged with along the way, and then all the content reuse. So that's one reason we, we like to leverage it is there's just so much value that comes from the act of doing right above and beyond just who shows up. Right. You know, and I've often heard that I've had, I've had people tell me that they tend to convert people that don't actually show up on the webinars. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe the decision maker couldn't make it live, but then their team member could. And so you never quite know. And, you know, having a recording just seems like it's yeah. like evergreen content, you know, and just can attract in the masses. 
It definitely is. I mean, we just did a webinar on Friday and I personally used it about seven other times since then. So I had a prospect call, sent it to the prospect. Uh, I had another meeting that was coming up, sent it to that person. I had a, I had another person that was like, Hey, um, loved the first half. Wasn't able to see it, uh, see the back half. Can you send me the recording? So yeah. like we're finding that the webinar and the recording is used on the sales side just as much as the marketing side. Mm. Um, so that's that's been tremendous. Again, it's the act of doing and the the value and the uses of it, uh, I think are are almost more important than the number of people that attend in some cases, especially in B2B in the B2B world. Yeah, I I'm I'm with you on that one. It, it's those vanity metrics that can be kind of deceiving. Ooh, how many people do we get? But right. really, it, it's what happens after the fact. You you do a really good job of activating that content. Yeah, what a great idea. You just spent all that time creating this webinar to have it be done. No, you're sending people links. You're clipping it. That makes a lot of sense that you don't just leave that content out to dry. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I was rocking my brain here to, to remember the book that I read, but one of the things that they said was they found a trend in that their best clients were their most educated clients during the sales process, right? So if you get a client who just just buys quickly and doesn't ask a lot of questions, all of a sudden they're they may be unhappy with the service because they didn't really know what they were getting, right? Oh, yeah. So when so somebody says, I watched your webinar during our sales cycle, that's awesome for us because they they got the pure version of what we provide and they still bought in. So that should be a fantastic client. So true, man. Uh, and I was just talking to uh, John Barrows, sales wizard yeah. extraordinaire. He was saying, aren't all issues typically about expectations? It's, it's all about expectation setting, right? And, and, and yeah, I, I actually, when you mentioned that, you know, past clients came, came to mind and I thought, yeah, if only they had heard the thing. And sometimes it's those partner sales or, or we, someone signs up and you weren't really involved in it. And so, they right. got kind of a part of the story. You're like, just a good lead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Salesforce was a notorious partner for us in the last yeah. company. And they were just, you know, magical cookies will come from the sky. Um, <laughs> by the way, this is a forward-looking statement and none of this may be true. Uh, right. but cookies Don't will come from the sky and just sign up with Casey and his team and you'll be all set. And people are waiting for the cookies to come down from the sky. We're like, wait, a minute. <laughs> who told you that was going to happen? Like, oh, someone else did. So yeah, yeah just the expectations. If only they were educated more. And that, that really goes to show that marketing and this webinar and this content can create better long-lasting customers that speaks to churn, that speaks to the longevity of a client, not just landing them, like tricking them into being right. You know, one month into, client. Right. It's like, that's not what you want. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's easier. Like, you know, we're, we're a smaller business and I'm very passionate about keeping our clients happy and our five-star service guarantee and everything else that we do. And I can see how it could slip when you have, you know, a sales rep that's giving it to a delivery team, right? That's yeah. kind of the traditional perception. I'm not saying it's 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 always right by any means, um, but it's kind of like, well, I sold it. Now you deliver, right? Don't confuse sale, yeah. you know, don't can you confuse sales and delivery. And, uh, but, you know, when your reputation's at risk, you need to bind sales and delivery very closely. Yeah, um, so and, and by the way, uh, you ask, they answer is the book that that came from. Cool. <laughs> yeah. you, tell me about this. So you ask, they answered. 
Yeah, so we love it. Um, they're also big on HubSpot. We're a HubSpot shop. They're big on HubSpot and content marketing. But I think the way that they explain it in that book just goes way further around anything that your prospect is asking, you should answer right on your website. And how you answer, there's some nuance to how you answer, right? There's some, there's some tact and things that come into it that they explain in the book. But and I'm not I'm not doing it justice because they put a lot of great content in that book. But sure. That I think is the essence is, you know, you should really be answering all those questions in video, in, in content, in different ways. Um, and so we really embrace that, right? Again, it's, it's, that's where that concept of like the most educated clients that they had in the book, you know, were some of their best clients because they knew what they were purchasing. Gosh, um, so they got that. those expectations, like you said. Love that, man. Yeah. Nothing like a happy customer. I love that. <laughs> right. It's just, ah, oh, wait. all your expectations have been, have been, um, surpassed oh my goodness well <laughs> fantastic great <laughs> yeah oh yeah we Where all want you that, right? every time it's like what path did you follow let's make sure everyone else follows that path and watches that video and joins that webinar yeah uh, and is informed the right way man that's so good any other books that you've been reading lately that just kind of standing out yeah i mean i don't know i read so many i'm, I'm kind of an audible junkie oh, uh, audible, but man. i can give Me you too. some of my favorites uh um, credits have been going fast <laughs> yeah, put it on like 1.25 and let them rip, you know. Oh yeah. Um, Are you 1.25 guy? Yeah, 1.2. I find like a certain speed is just not helpful. And then you yeah. know, I know I, Blinkist is really popular and some other things like that. I've actually kind of gone the flip direction where I think I need to be spend more time per book to really execute on it instead of listening to more. Um, so I think I've kind of gone through phases where I was I was listening to more to get more input and more ideas. And now I'm actually going back through certain books and saying, I need to do more with that. You know, I need yeah. to execute on that. And so I think that's, that's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of, of going deeper, but. I totally yeah. get that, man. You know, you do hit a Blinkist book. Hey, great. Whole book's done. Well, shit. Now I have 12 to, to do's at least right yeah. from that or in ideas to explore. If I do another book in the next five minutes, well, now I've got 24. That was my problem with, do you ever, uh, Tim Ferriss had a book tool of Titans. Yeah, I've heard of it. I have a giant tome, right? Where he just podcast and he interviewed these brilliant yeah. people. He'd ask them all the same question. Like, what, what, what's your, what product do you recommend? Right. Was one of his questions. And you get these really interesting things. What, what things do you like to drink? Really interesting teas people recommend. I wrote on the back of the book, like a to-do list of like, oh, get that tea, try it out. Like, right. try this out. Try. I fill up the whole back cover full of to-dos <laughs> after like four interviews, you know? And yeah. I've never, I probably will never finish that book because it's just too it's much. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we got to slow down to speed up, you know, agree, we got to, we got to slow down and, and go through a chapter and execute some of that and then go to the next one, you know? So yeah. I've definitely been um, I'm going through too much content sometimes and, and building that totally. list that I never get to. Do you know Dan Sullivan and yeah. strategic coach? Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever do the program? No, I haven't done the program. So recommended. Oh, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Okay. Um, four mate of mine was, was doing it, sold his company for over a hundred million. So I was like, whatever you do, I'm going to do too. <laughs> right. And, and yeah, it was, it was a great program. But with that, once a quarter, I'd go up to Toronto and I'd get like a mindset or two and then a tool or two to implement over the next quarter. Right. But it, it was very right. much like you're describing where it's like, okay, here's this amazing thing. And they, they have like three years worth of content, but yeah. Yeah. Here's a quarter to just even try to do this with your team, help them understand how to use it. Make sure you right. know how to use it. 
get this thing rolled out. It's like just like traction too. You can't just like dump it on an organization. You have to give them time. Right. Yeah. You. It takes. It takes time. I think there's a lot. Uh, I've been thinking about that a little bit. Not to go off on a on a too much of a tangent, but this I've is been a tangent about, show, okay? man. That's, that's I've what been we thinking do here. about like this, um, like time and complexity curve, right? So when you start a business, a lot of the problems you're solving in the grand scheme of building a company are easy and quick. And you can find a solution more rapidly than when you're at uh, half a million or a million or 10 million. And I think what happens is, and and I have no data to back this up, I'm really speaking from experiences, you kind of get used to being in that rhythm depending on how long you stayed in that area, right? So if you stayed at, you know, zero to half a million for 15 years, and then you decided to scale up, you you start getting really surprised by the complexity, right? And so I think people get in that mode where the the they're hitting, they think they can hit the easy button because they used to hit the easy button and it worked. But only 4% of businesses make it to a million and only 0.4 in the US make it to 10 million, which gives you an idea of, of how hard it can be to get there and all the all the paths you can take before getting there, right? All the all the ways that you can end up, you know, yeah, selling, all the off ramps, closing, or what? All the off ramps, right? Yeah. And so I think that's the hard part for some founders, and it's more of something that has been percolating in my mind is, with every million, the complexity of the problem goes up, and the time it takes to solve that problem, and maybe even the money, right? So there's there's complexity, and there's time and money, and there's some factor of those three things that are all higher than the last problem you solve for every million you move up in revenue. And we, I think we maybe tend to forget that sometimes. And that's why yeah. it gets hard. We keep wanting to hit that easy button instead of, oh, we got to double back down. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And maybe, you know, looking at a, gi- a giant company, think, oh, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Like <laughs> I could totally make that change happen right now in my much, much, much smaller company. Right. But it's, it's not nearly as complex as you think it is. No. Uh, and if you get to that level, you know, I, I, having a coach helps with this. I, I had, um, had, um, you know, Eric Cruz from you Boston. No, I haven't met him. He, he was, um, he was coaching me doing some traction. He was also my, my CEO coaching. And I, and I would tell him the problems or the challenges that I had in my last company. And, and then just to help me feel a little bit better, he would tell me some of the problems he was experiencing in his company. that was like 10 X the size of mine. Right. right? <laughs> and then suddenly my problems were like, you know, it wasn't it's in a, a way of like, it wasn't like not empathetic. It was just to, to show you that. And he even mentioned that as you grow, the problems don't go away. They get bigger to your point and more complex yeah, and crazier, but you have more strength to attack it because you've uh, hopefully learned and got a little calloused on the way there. Yeah. But you yeah, have more resources, more, more resources. Money, hopefully, yeah. You know. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that can be a real challenge, you know, and I think that's that goes back to this easy button, right? Or, yeah. or you know, you have to build, not buy, because at every level there's a tier. I think what really, what really triggered that thought for me. So I do MMA and jujitsu, and uh, I was going to MMA. I was a white belt for you know nine months, a year, whatever it was. Yeah. And there's all kinds of people. Like there's 30 people to this class, 40 people to this class, right? We'd get these big classes. And then all of a sudden I finally graduated to yellow belt MMA, right? And I'm like, awesome. 
and and I'm at the top of the class, right? There's only a few people I like to spar with and hit the mitts with and whatnot. And so I'm at the top. So then I go to my first yellow belt class, right back down to the bottom, right? <laughs> I'm getting whooped, <laughs> you know? And um, so it was, it really dawned on me these tears in life. And um, and I, I just haven't, I guess, MMA is is so physical that I yeah. felt it, literally felt yeah. felt the change, um, and so it, it really triggered that thought around like you know every million I'm just back at the bottom of the next one, and I really am start. It feels like when I went to Yellow Belt, it felt like I was starting over. I was at the bottom of the class, you know, definitely the least competent. And and the, here's the thing too: there was only eight people in that class. Wow, you know. And at the so, yellow, at the yellow class was only at eight? the yellow class. So I mean, Almost we had like 30 a pyramid 40, of like people were, weren't they were falling off as you're yeah, going they fall off, right? And yeah. so and so from a if you if you parlay that into a, a business sense, right? That's the same thing. You know, a lot of people fall off at a million. A lot of people fall off at three million. You know, and and you're back at the bottom. And I think that's one thing that has actually started to serve me well over time is just knowing that I'm back at the bottom and I have to double back down on myself and my growth and get the coaches or read the next book or, or know that it's going to be challenging. Um, So yeah, that was, that was the moment about six months ago where like there was this mind meld connection between the physical and the the business. I was like, Oh, I see the pattern. (laughs) So you yellow bone now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for, for some sort of, I I did karate. Right. And so, For for karate, that's like the belt you get, you know, maybe a year and a half in, no big yeah. deal, and it doesn't really mean anything. But the difference is, and that's so I was respected about uh, jujitsu and more MMA side is, is that it 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 typically means something, right? It means it, yeah, you should be able to handle the white belts or anyone, and then someone who's not trained, right? And yeah, then definitely. You're progressing it like it. It's not just like you check the box. It means you have demonstrated um, an ability and just this, there's so much respect for that. Um, that's amazing yeah. that, you, that, that you're there. Are you going to keep yeah, doing Just keep blast. doing it? Are you hooked? Uh, yeah, I would like to. Um, I took a little detour, a little time off uh, right now. I actually started playing lacrosse, um, but I need to get back into it because I want to keep going up and, and excelling on that. I think that's more of a lifelong thing. I think um, like one guy got promoted to black belt for jujitsu and I think he had been going you know, like almost four days a week for about 10 years. Right. So to give you that idea, it's a uh, time and, and classes and, and number of classes and a lot of things that factor into those belts in, in yeah. jujitsu and MMA. So it is um, kind of a lifelong pursuit in a way, you know, hundred percent, like a, like it's a, it's, and it's the journey anyways. Right. right. It's, it's That's not the even part. the destination. Hey, I got my black. Okay. What do yeah. I do now? Like it, it's the progression that yeah. that uh, is worth it um crazy man you got all these things going on who are you who are you can you take me back in time little you days you know little josh growing up did you know you're gonna be an entrepreneur crushing it uh, thought leader marketer mma absolute badass what was I, it like yeah i don't know that i was gonna be an entrepreneur but i think it started a long time ago you know so yeah. in my family uh, you got, you got a gift and, and we were, we were, we had a great life, you know, but, but it was a birthday and Christmas. That's when you got something, anything else outside right. of that was there's no money. Um, so, and I don't even know if kids do this these days, but I mean, I was like seven and eight years old pushing a lawnmower and knocking on doors 
to make money so that I could buy the things that I wanted. So I think it got started at an early age, just uh, somewhat out of a necessity. And uh, I was like, hey, if you want something, you have to go knock the doors. And, you know, we did a lot of the, the fundraisers at school. You know, I wanted to be number one. So I would knock the most doors. I would go to businesses and and walk around and ask if I could, you know, sell some candy bars at, at the entryway. Um, so I did a lot of those types of things early on. And I think it just really carried through into entrepreneurship. It's like, if you really want what you, you know, if you want what, uh, you think you want in life, like this is the best path for you to go do it, or, or in this case, the best path for me. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of ingrained from an early, early place. And you, you sold candy bars. I, I don't know if there's anything I didn't sell. I mean, there was fundraisers for school. I remember right? selling so candy, candy bars. Those bars. were pretty good. I liked them because they were quick, right? It wasn't the magazine right, it's a or the, <laughs> the popcorn or the delayed thing. It was like right here, right now, right. It's just a dollar. You know, you want it. Let's go. Exactly. You know? I mean, you had the box, right? It wasn't yeah. the popcorn. Like I have to write down your name. You have to hope I'm going to come back and you don't know me. You know, right. it's like, and and that then it was like a dollar, right? Dollar, yeah. Candy bar dollar, you know? So yeah, I did that. Rake leaves, uh, cut grass, you name awesome. it. And then I had a bunch of like little small businesses, you know, as I got into high school, um, and then they just kept progressing. So I think by the time maybe I was about 20, 22, I had my first six figure business and then, you know, it just progressed wow. and built from What there. was that? What was your yeah. first six figure business? Oh man. I don't know if I've even shared that one in a long time. Uh, so I grew up doing telecom, like infrastructure, wiring and cabling is low sure. voltage industry. Uh, so I'd been doing that since I was 13. And so that ended up being my first six figure business while I was wow. in college. So I had like I running telephone contracts. line and. Phones. Yeah, it was like in buildings and houses. So, you know, if if, wow. if a big company was building a six-story building and they needed all the lines, and this was pre-Wi-Fi, right? So yeah. now you just have to run the line for Wi-Fi and you're good. But uh, we were running, you know, four drops to every desk and there's yeah. 2,400 desks. Um, so we did all that uh, wiring infrastructure, fiber optics, those things. So that was my first six-figure business. So cool. Yeah. So cool. Um was it, I kind of, I kind of asked this um, from my own experience. What was it about? I mean, was the business for, for the money for, because gifts were only certain times of the year? Was it the challenge, the competition? What, what really drove you to create those? Um, I think early on, like, you know, when I'm, when I'm eight years old, I just wanted to buy something, you know, yeah. like I need to get, I need to get this much to buy this part for my bike because I like BMX, you know? Yeah. And I think that was the majority of the pattern early on is like, that was a means to get the item that you're looking for, um, that you, you kind of can't get otherwise, or I couldn't get otherwise. Right. Um, and then I think it grew into kind of a passion of probably more of the competition, more of the growth, you know? So now when I set goals, people are like, well, what if you don't hit that number? I'm like, it's the journey. I just want to grow as a person. I want to be better today than I was yesterday. I want to be better in 2023 than 2022. And so now I think also, you know, once your, once your means have been leveled up, right. You're kind of, uh, what is it? Uh, Maslow's hierarchy yeah. uh, of needs, right? So once your needs are met, it becomes more for me, at least it became more personal growth and the opportunities that presents to give back to. Um, Cause I think that's been an awesome part where, you know, I don't remember us doing a lot of donations and things. I don't know that we had the money when I was a kid. And now, you know, they're like, you know, somebody comes to us from the high school and they're like, hey, 
you know, we do this, we do this program where we buy, you know, we help kids that don't have the means play lacrosse or sports or whatever it is. And we, as a company can write a check, I can write a check, you know, to donate. And so I think the, the value has changed a good bit over the years of, of the why behind it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So who are ideal customers for you and your team? Yeah. So we focus primarily on companies that are two to 20 million and that are B2B. So that's really our sweet spot. We have some below, we have some higher, we have some B2C, but the sweet spots really those, those in the two to 20 million range that are B2B focused. Mm -hmm. Uh, We love companies that um, unfortunately have maybe gone through some lead generation, maybe, maybe learned a few lessons where they they're valuing what we're providing and kind of the message and the way that we do things um, just because it helps from, you know, from a a good fit perspective. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Fantastic, man. Well, next I have a bit of a hypothetical question. Okay. All right. See, I may or may not have a time machine up in New Hampshire. So let's say you come visit, right? right? Come on up, get some lobster, hang out with some beers and try out the time machine. It's a particular kind of time machine though. And it goes back in time where you get to meet yourself Ooh. and you get to meet yourself, um, you know, early, early twenties. Um, and it's like young, young, you, you probably just may, maybe it's right around the time you hit that, that, that six figure, um, telephone biz, right? You get to visit that person, that you, that version of you, and you can chat with yourself. What kind of things do you tell yourself? What kind do you give yourself advice, recommendations? What do you say? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, talk less and ask more questions. <laughs> you mm. know, it'd probably be a good one. Um, you know, I think that um, early on, you know, and I, I see this in a lot of high performers too, is early on, you know, when you have some success there, there can be a good bit of ego involved, you know, so, you know, keep, keep the positive part of the ego, but let the negative part go, right? Like keep the positive part that provides the drive and the ambition, but let the negative part where you, you think, you know, more than you actually know is hindering you. Um, so I think that's a big one looking back. Um, one that I always have to remind myself of is, you know, people remember not what you did, but how you made them feel, you know, I'm a little more on the engineering and logic side. So, you know, I like the systems and processes and and the the logical route is going to get somebody to make that decision. And, you know, I think one of the things I've learned just in being in marketing long enough is it's, it's about the story, you know, it's about how you make somebody feel. Uh, there's a lot more factors. And so, yeah, I think those are a few things I would go back and tell myself. Uh, and and hopefully that person uh, would listen. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, would you listen to uh, older yeah. you? Yeah. He'd be like, maybe, maybe I would. Hope <laughs> shake myself a little bit. Let's go. Right. Oh, man. Well, hey, where can people reach out? Where can they connect with you? Where can they connect with your company? What, what are good yeah. spots? Yeah. So you can go to founderscale.com, hit the contact page. You can reach out and just put my name in there. I'm happy to answer. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Josh Sweeney and search Josh Sweeney Atlanta. You should find me pretty quickly. Uh, So reach out on any of those and love to chat. Um, Any questions you have, always happy to help and just reach out. Hell yeah, man. Dude, This has been so good. Thank you so much for coming on here. 
it's been fun hashing out these strategies, understanding demand gen, lead gen, understanding the the built, not bought. Um, I just thank you so much for coming on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. These were fantastic questions and a lot of fun. Yeah, seriously. And for those listening, if you learned something, and I freaking know you did because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back. Nice. Can you send me those? Yeah, you want it? <laughs> I'm I'll good. sign it for you. Um, then, then yeah, share this episode with one person, nine people, 3,000 people. But that's thought leadership, getting good information into other people's hands. Maybe they're a little confused. Maybe they've been burned by the lead gen side. So they, they got to get some changes going on. Reach out, work with Josh and his team. Um, get someone in your corner helping you out, especially if you're trying to position yourself with leadership and whatnot. Um, man, Josh, thank you again. Thank you. All right, everyone. This has been such a cool episode, such a cool conversation on the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will see you all next time.